1: Hi, uh, this is Aaron Weinacht with uh, New Books in uh, Russian Studies, and I'm here with Professor Margaret Peacock to talk with her about her book, uh, Innocent Weapons, which is about uh, the role that children played in the uh, Cold War era propaganda. So anyway, thanks for being with us, Professor.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, I was wondering if you would start us off by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, where you went to school, how you got interested in Cold War history uh, in general, and this topic in particular.
2: Okay. Um, Well, first, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to chat with you today. Um, I actually did my uh, PhD at the University of Texas in Austin, Um, I studied under Joan Newberger, who is a a scholar who these days works on film, but wrote a really brilliant first book on the history of hooliganism in 19th century Russia. And, um, I very much wanted to work in children's history, um, particularly in, in, uh, Soviet or Russian Soviet children's history. So she was definitely my, my target advisor. Uh, I fell in love with Russian history and particularly with, um, this material, uh, as a child, um, I think, uh, I was probably the last generation to actually do nuclear, nuclear drills as a child in school growing up. Um, you know, I grew up in Alabama where in the 1980s, we still, you know, every once in a while would hide under the desk because there was a nuclear bomb coming. And I think people sort of forget that the 1980s was a period of, um, heightened nuclear fear is, you know, those are the years when the day after, you know, filmed on ABC television on a weeknight and um, you had a massive anti-nuclear movement, you know, sort of re resuscitated in the 1980s with the collapse of detente and the rise of cold war antagonisms with Reagan. And my parents were very much involved in the anti-nuclear movement. So, you know, as um, you know, would, suit me i guess i instead of being terrified uh, of the russian threat became deeply fascinated by it uh, and decided to go off and learn russian and study russian history and become a russian historian so that's how i headed in that direction i actually initially thought i would go to grad school to study the what happened to the children who were left behind when the kulaks were all sent off to siberia in the 1930s under stalin And got about a year into that research before realizing that if I continued to do it, I was going to become suicidal because it was so, so dark and so depressing. And the material was just impossible to navigate, especially since I myself was like had a family and had children and it just wasn't going to work. I was, I was not a nice person to be around. So I I quit it and decided I was going to go to the happier, more comforting years after Stalin dies in the 1950s. Um to the Khrushchev era, where there's at least an inkling of hope and a resurgence of creative output, um, and to focus a little bit more on the Cold War so that I could think more comparatively about the Soviet and American Cold War experiences.
1: Your your comment there reminds me of uh, reading the introduction to uh, Lifton's book on Nazi doctors, where yes. he talks about his topic having almost ruined his marriage. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so totally.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I remember in grad.
1: School,
2: totally, I remember in grad school we. It was weird, but noticeable that the German and the modern German and Soviet historians all hung out together, and <laughs> we eventually realized it's because we're all manic depressives.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I get that. Yeah, maybe I've escaped it by being a 19th century scholar myself, but uh, before the uh, the mass murders start. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Which maybe we should, I interviewed David Hoffman for his book about uh, the Stalin era yeah. uh, last week. I mean, we should ask him how he survives it.
2: Oh, he's got to be – he has to have a dark soul to do what he does. There's no <laughs> question about it. Um, what's great, though, is that at least Soviet historians and, and imperial Russianists, too, because, you know, Russia is just a history of suffering, um, You know, think very deep and morose thoughts all the time, but also have an ability to really let go and have a good time. Um, and enjoy themselves. Uh, mechanism. Yeah, something like that. So I always have the best. I always have the best time at the Russian conferences. You know, far better than any of the others that I go to.
1: Huh. Uh, so uh, about the uh, about your book, then I was wondering if you could tell everybody uh, just ha- what about this this Cold War consensus that uh, the Americans and the Russians are both trying to build, and what role the the children play in that.
2: Okay. Well, this term, Cold War Consensus, probably needs a little unpacking. Um, it wasn't actually mine initially. There are other historians who have talked a lot over the years, you know, big famous people like Noam Chomsky, um, and then you know, lesser known but equally important historians like Wendy Wall, who've talked about how the United States, at least Chomsky in particular is talking about the United States, but really how governments, modern governments in the 20th century worked very hard um, and particularly in the Cold War to figure out how to construct uh, domestic support for international policies that could otherwise fail to elicit support. You know, the Cold War was... Not a war that had any obvious ending. We we call it a cold war. We call it a war, but it was a it was a complicated event that lasted for seventy years. That I mean, really, depending on who you talk to, some people trace the beginnings of the cold war back to the nineteenth century. But point being that because by the by the time we get to nineteen you know forty nine, um, because we each side had nuclear weapons pointing at each other. There was no real possibility for a conventional resolution to the Cold War. There never was. There were, at no point were American and Soviet soldiers ever going to line up, you know, for a great battle, like a great Napoleonic battle and decide a winner or a loser. Um, instead, this was going to be a war that was going to last potentially for generations um, where there were there was going to be no clear winner, but there might be potential for victories in proxy wars a la Vietnam, a la Afghanistan, a la India and Iran, Guatemala and Iraq, and, you know, the list goes on and on. But none of those, none of those wars, none of those smaller wars would ever actually resolve the larger war, the larger Cold War um, that was continuously shaping the globe. So these these governments, both the Soviet, what I at least made the argument in the book was that these, these governments, both the Soviet and the U.S. governments, had to figure out um, from the 1950s on how to convince their domestic populations that these wars were worth fighting for, um, and that they were they were worth the vast expense that they were going to cause, um, and they were worth the population, you know, the cost of this was going to be that one of the costs was going to be that the population had to be willing to hand over to a certain extent its own civil liberties there had to be an openness to allowing for increased governmental policing and surveillance. Um, there had to be a willingness to, um, go along with pro- the fighting of proxy wars that could be very morally ambiguous, um, because, you know, the men, the means justified the ends and the ends were the fighting of communism or capitalism, right? Depending on which side you're on. So, that's what the cold war consensus is right it's this it's this effort being orchestrated i mean not just by the government which is a really rare reified term you know used to describe very complex social networks of people who are for a whole variety of reasons trying to manipulate and control populations usually for power and profit and and that's that's exactly what was going on then. So you had these two governments frantically trying to construct Cold War consensus and they um, realized actually that they, there was this tried and tested tool that they could use dating way back to, you know, Rome in the 11th century, um, which was the image of the, of the child, um, you know, Children are incredible propaganda tools. They, uh, at least in modern Western society, they have great symbolism, right? The sort of concrete sense. We at least have a sense that they, that they carry this kind of static meaning. Mm-hmm. They are always innocent. Um, they, are, they are, when we are facing enemies, they are always the first that we must protect, they are always at risk, and they are always worthy of all, of all sacrifice, of, all, of even the greatest sacrifice—the sacrificing of one's life, the sacrificing of one's morals. They're they're worth everything. So, um, in the Cold War, uh, Soviet and American propagandists and politicians, you know, went about the business of constructing these really spectacular images of American and Soviet children that they were going to use, they decided, you know, that would get used over the course of many generations um, to justify uh, policies that that would otherwise seem pretty questionable.
1: I was was wondering how uh, children specifically got selected in light of your comment in the book, that uh yeah. also, also the, the raped rape woman wars. is kind of a powerful symbol you know i was thinking about world war one propaganda uh-huh. where that comes up and obviously you know soviet uh you know engaging in mass rapes of german women and uh-huh. after the uh second world war uh yeah any any thoughts on that
2: i'm sorry what's the question
1: Sorry. the uh, Just why why it is that the, the image of the child uh, got selected for this as opposed to other kind of powerful images that people might have selected to be uh, part of propaganda.
2: Right. Well, I mean, you can't, you know, because this was a war where people were soldiers were not lining up, right? There was no battlefield upon which American soldiers fought, Russian soldiers. Not only that, but there was no possibility for a Soviet invasion of the United States and vice versa. Right. So there there wasn't it wasn't going to work to sort of have images of Soviet soldiers raping American women because it just wasn't going to be it's not in the cards and, and vice versa. Like it's just not going to happen. Um, and there you couldn't have images of Soviet Soviet soldiers bayonetting American children either, which is, you know, sort of the iconic image from the First World War. Like you couldn't have that either. But what you could have was images of Soviet of Soviet communist propagandists. Um, infiltrating the minds of American children to weaken them, um, to turn them into robots, to turn them into uh, individuals incapable of independent um, democratic capitalist thinking, um, and and to make them somehow uh, open to communist infiltration. So um, unlike in the First World War, the enemy in the Cold War was not you know, didn't reside on the other side of a, of a geographic boundary. I mean, no question, the Russians existed in Ru- the Soviets existed in the Soviet Union. But, you know, one of the integral defining features of the Cold War, both um, the Cold War experience, both in the United States and in the Soviet Union, was that you couldn't necessarily know where your enemy lay. Um, this is, you know, this was um, J. Edgar Hoover's bread and butter, right? That, that your, that your neighbor could be a communist and you wouldn't even know it. And you need to become educated and vigilant in order to keep yourself aware of potential communist activities so that you can protect yourself and your wife and your children. Um, because the enemy doesn't reside on the battlefield anymore. The enemy resides, you know, on the playground or in the classroom, um, you know, as the case may be. So that's, you know, there's a big difference, um, between, there, there's sort of a difference in um, in image, but not a difference in kind, I guess, between how the United States—I mean, about how the propaganda works in the Second World—I mean, after the Second World War and during the Cold War—than how it per- potentially works
1: in the first. So, <coughs> excuse me. So. Yeah. Uh- I was wondering, then, in that that said, if you could comment on what you mean by the idea of the contained child. That seemed like a fairly important concept of yours,
2: right? So I borrowed that language from the the policy of containment, right, which was the the term that was used to define American foreign policy, American Cold War foreign policy. Um, you know, throughout the early years of the Cold War, before we, you know, we get into the 60s, into you know, rollback and then later on, you know, into détente. So but containment was this defining feature, both um certainly of American policy, but there was kind of a Soviet equivalent. And and what it really meant was that you that both sides endeavored to pitch an image of their own children as contained in these critical ways, as um. Existing, uh, you know, as kind of tabula rasa's, um, innocent and uh, you know free of vice when they get started, you know, a la Rousseau, right, born born free of vice, and then um, the rest of the American community is deeply obliged, and the and the Soviet community deeply obliged to participate very heavily in the rearing of these contained children. Um, to make sure that they uh, that they live the kinds of lives, they learn the kinds of lessons that are going to allow them to become cold warriors when they, uh, you know, when they get older, um, because when they take over the realm. Because of course, there is no potential end. Right? There potentially is no end to the Cold War, um, and and uh, the corollary to that, the really critical, important corollary to that is that they. Um, they also could be victimized. Right. And while they were on the one hand symbolized, they, while on the one hand, they symbolized these crusaders for all that is good and decent about the nation that they, that they represent. Right. The, on the one hand, they rep, you know, for the Soviet children, it's all about being um, followers of Stalin's, um, at least before he dies in 53, it's all about being, you know, followers of Stalin's lessons and seeing Stalin as the great father and, um, endeavoring in everything that they do day and night to participate in the construction of a Soviet utopia. Um, at the same time, the, um, in American um, public rhetoric, there's an image of the American child uh, deeply committed to democracy and capitalism and the promotion of freedom um, at home and abroad, or particularly at home in the 1950s, stuff abroad. Happens a little bit later, but point being that that right alongside that, and absolutely critical to that, is the idea that this child who is at the at on the at on the one hand crusading for, you know, for freedom um, and very much symbolizing all that is good and decent in the nation that is rearing them, um, they are also very deeply threatened um, by outside forces that demand mobilization by the nation um, in order to protect them.
1: I was I was curious. Uh, you you mentioned the Boy Scouts quite a bit later in the book, yeah. but you you brought them up there in the first chapter. In particular, you were talking about how there were those uh, Cold War related merit badges.
2: Oh and yeah,
1: I was just wondering. I mean, do you know where where those things popular? Did a lot of did a lot of kids in the Boy Scouts, uh, you know, do what you had to do to get those badges?
2: Yeah, no, they absolutely did. It, it was getting into the Boy Scout archives wasn't was quite possibly the hardest research part of the entire project. You would think getting into the Russian archives would be difficult, but they they were a walk in the park compared to the boy scouts. Um boy scouts don't want you doing don't want private people doing research in their archives. Um they're they're too worried that we might I think they're worried that we might do research on homosexuality so they they didn't want to let me in. I had to send a letter explicitly saying I wasn't going to think about his homosexuality when I did my work. And then I think somehow things got better. That and, you know, it's always a good idea to bring a batch of cookies when you show up at an archive. But, <laughs> you know,
1: I've never tried that. Oh,
2: no, no. Like lesson number one is if people are giving you a hard time, go make cookies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I will I will remember that. Yeah. Words to it. Words yeah. to live. Right, but... right.
2: No, no. Yeah. For all of you grad students listening, just find a good cookie recipe. <laughs> Um, anyway, but the uh, Scout i mean, the, with the Boy Scout stuff—you know, the, the, from what I saw at least, it looked like it would. You know, from the it didn't; those badges didn't stay in there for very long. They uh, came into—you know—I can't remember the exact dates now. It was a long time since I did that work, but the, they came into the um, Boy Scout catalog, like into the badge catalog. You know, sometime near the end of the, like in the mid to late '60s, and you know, they were gone by the late the late '70s. They were they weren't in there anymore. But I saw lots of evidence of Boy Scouts doing them. Interestingly, the Girl Scouts never did. Um, and when I did work in the Girl Scout archives in New York, I discovered that I found all these letters between the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. The Boy Scouts were busy telling the Girl Scouts they need to, you know, they need to start, they need to have all these badges. They need to do the the equivalent for the Girl Scouts. Um, except that the Girl Scouts, of course, need to learn how to stock the fallout shelters with food um, and how to cook an appetizing meal for their husbands inside the fallout shelter. And like that sort of genderized work um labeling was definitely going on at the time. But uh the Girl Scouts refused. Uh they had um I think there was a wonderful snarky letter that I found that basically said, uh, we don't see the normalization of nuclear war as a part of our mandate. Thank you very much. And I thought that was really nice. (laughs)
1: Well, it's, it's sort of hard to argue with that phrase <laughs> the normalization of nuclear war there's really there's no there's only one right answer to that
2: right um although you know i mean if, if you, you can see in my book that that's exactly what the Boy Scouts were doing you know I mean just in they were the, do what they were doing by you know implementing these nuclear knowledge and safety badges um was no different from what Bert the turtle did you know when he sort of told children in a happy th- you know, voice that they, if, if there's a nuclear war that hits while the bombs are going off and they happen to be in the cl- playground of their school, they should just, you know, plop to the ground and put their hands over their heads. I remember my, I remember seeing that video as a child and my, I mean, much later, cause I grew up in the eighties, but still, and my father turning to me and saying, Margaret, if you look up in the sky and there's a nuclear war coming, just try to get a hail mary out before it comes like <laughs> 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 try to just get out like please god forgive me for my sins like try to get that out before it hits <laughs>
1: Well, that 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 would do as much good as hiding under the desk. Uh, oh no,
2: it would do more good because then at least you've protected your eternal soul. You know, at least true. you've asked you've done something for ver- 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 verging, you know, verging on your last rights so that you've right. got a chance at making it into heaven.
1: Like, <laughs> reminds me of that great interview with the atomic scientist in the uh the documentary Atomic Cafe, where oh, he's yeah. talking about how people being incinerated in their own fallout shelters and so mm-hmm. on. Uh,
2: yeah. Right. No, I remember that vividly. And I remember, um, I, I, the, I saw that I saw Atomic Cafe and then I think I saw Das Boot like a few days later and in, forever in my head, I have the thought of men dying in submarines wrapped up in the thought of people dying in fallout shelters yeah. or in a tank. Also going in a tank would
1: suck. Yeah. I, I don't, don't want to do any of those. Yeah, none of those sound like, uh, like pleasant <laughs> ways to go uh, at all.
2: Probably yeah. the nuclear. Really, honestly, if there's a nuclear holocaust coming, you would do well to just go stand out on the street and enjoy the light
1: show. Grab a beer in a lawn chair.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: in the in the next chapter, you're talking. Of, you're you're kind of focused on the theme of, of threat. You know how Americans mm-hmm. perceive threats to uh, uh, American children, and and the same with the Russians. And uh, you're talking about. Uh, Delinquency and and in this country, and then hooliganism uh, in in Russia. Uh, you know, just for you know for a largely English speaking audience here, I was wondering if you could comment on what the Russians took to be hooligan type behavior.
2: Okay, well, I mean, hooligan type behavior in the Soviet Union in the nineteen fifties is not all that far off from juvenile delinquent behavior in the United States in the 1950s. um, I think that, you know, when we think about American juvenile delinquents in the 1950s, we think of Jimmy Dean, right? And we think of the beatniks and we think of the, the, the guys from the West side story from that musical. (laughs) Like that's what we sort of, those are our images of of hooligans in the fifties, but it's, uh, What ultimately, right, what hooliganism is and what juvenile delinquency is, is um, young people uh, failing to follow the paths that have been designated for them, you know, laid out for them by the adults around them, um, for for them to age and grow, uh, and an an unwillingness on the part of the young generation to acknowledge and respect the rules of the world that the older generation has created. Um, and whether we are talking about the Soviet Union or the United States, they are, you know, by and large doing the same thing, um, in the, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, both sides were worrying frantically about, um, the education crisis, crises that they perceived were happening. I mean, you have to remember that this is the baby boom, um, this is the era when schools, uh, like. You know, public elementary and high schools were actually running two shifts a day um, because there were so many kids that were being born that they they couldn't actually just run a regular school day. So, in in even mid sized cities, you, you'd have you'd have one group of kids who would go to school from seven to two, and then another kid group of or seven to what seven to one, and then another group of kids that would go to school. Uh, from seven, from one o'clock to you know six o'clock or seven o'clock, and that that was daily, right? That was a daily thing, and that was the only that was the only way to manage this vast population. And just like with any other, and the, by the way, that also happened in the Soviet Union. You had a big um, surge in births happen in um, the mid fifties and on, right? It, the early fifties are not so good because the Soviet Union was actually decimated by the Second World War. And lots of men are dead. 20 million Russians are dead, right? So it takes a while for them to sort of get the population back up. But even they, you know, get into the business of having babies in the 1950s. And the other big change, the big sociological change that happens in both sides of the Iron Curtain is that they experience a kind of material growth, um, like what, uh, in wealth and in acquisition, that um, neither side had really known before. You know, it, the. For the United States, it was the Great Depression, and then it was the Second World War, and then it was finally the post-war era, right, the Cold War era, where there was real money to be made, and all of a sudden, every family can have a car, and your kids don't necessarily have to go to work. and. Kids can start at the age of 16, start expecting to get a car. They can have leisure time. They can go to they can afford to go to the movies or out to dinner. And the same the same phenomenon happens in the Soviet Union. And, and what that means is that you've just got a lot of young people um, who have a lot of a lot more free time on their hands than they've ever had before. And they are trying um, desperately to figure out you know what their generation is going to do and how their generation is going to define themselves. Now, my book isn't really about kids, right? My book is about how adults thought about kids and how adults manipulated and used kids and uh and used their images for political purposes and for the adults who saw all of this happening. Um this became a, the, the, the failures that they perceived of, and that they saw in hooliganism and in juvenile delinquency actually uh, offered all kinds of political opportunities to them. Um, you know, if you've got kids who are who are who you are able to label as hooligans, all of a sudden it means that you can start doing major curricular changes to how they get educated, because you can do that. You can justify that by saying that the education they're receiving now isn't so good you can start to argue that the parents are not doing a good job of raising their children. That's why we have all these delinquents. And so we need to start policing the parents too. And we need to start managing far more closely how families are raising their kids. Um, And that means that we all of a sudden can justify getting access to the living room, to the bedroom, to the playroom. We can start... um, calling in experts, a la Foucault, um, to somehow, you know, lay judgment on how best one can go about raising a good American child or a good Soviet child. And we can start to, you know, make pretty heavy claims about that. And we can we can put the power of the government behind it. And we can make parents feel very bad if they aren't following the rules. Um, we can even label parents as communists or as capitalists if they aren't raising children The way that we think they should be raising them. Or we can even just say that they're not raising the children the way we think they are, even if, you know, we don't even know how they're raising their kids. Point being that 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 image of the delinquent child um, can justify uh, government access to the pipe, to the private sphere in ways that, you know, you really never have seen before.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I was wondering along those same lines, uh, uh, It stuck out to me that you said that both in both cases both for the russians and the americans that there was a lot of public worry that the younger generation was was succumbing to consumerism and then i i sat back and thought but wait a minute both sides say we're better than you because we make more stuff look at the material wealth that we make so Mm -hmm. how do you square that basic problem that we're better than you because our economy makes more stuff, but then criticize the youth for having a consumerist attitude.
2: Right. So there are two different notions of good consumption, I guess. There are two different ideas about what good consumption should look like in the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, the United States struggles with this issue um, because it. I think there is this inherent paradox in the United States in the 1950s, where we, on the one hand, derive great pride from knowing that we are able to make our children happier and more comfortable than anyone else in the world ever has for their children, right? And as soon as you can say, as soon as you can make the argument that you are able to make your children happier and more comfortable than any other nation ever in history, it's really that goes a long way in justifying your nation's existence, right? Like, we are the best at raising raising kids, so that makes us great. Um, at the same time, American American jurists, American sociologists, American psychologists, in particular, um, began to really worry that American kids were actually suffering um, because of this egregious consumerism that they saw. Um, you know, you have to be careful not to sort of say Americans thought anything because, you know, United States, people think all kinds of different things. Nobody, there is no uniform American thinking. Um, You, on the one hand, you have, you have businessmen um, in particular and producers and manufacturers absolutely making the argument that if you're, if you're a good parent, you're going to buy a new pair of shoes for your child every six months. Um, Or you're going to buy your child this latest game or you're going to buy your daughter this pretty new dress. Right. That's what defines you as a good parent. Your consumption, your ability to consume is what makes you a good American. Um, On the other hand, you'll have you have you have concerned sociologists and politicians who are saying, wait a minute, all this consumption is turning our children weak. It's making them. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're not hard, like the, like the generation that fought in the second world war was they're They're losing their priorities. All of this consumption that they're doing is going to make it impossible. is going to make their minds weak and it's going to make them susceptible to communist um, ideas. Other people make the argument that consumption is a great defense against communism, that if you are consuming, um, then, and you're able to consume, then you're not likely to be, you know, attracted to the idea that you should be re- redistributing your wealth. And there is something to that. Um, now, on, on the Russian side, though, there's another thing going on. On the Soviet side, there's another thing going on. The, the Soviets believed that, at least by the time we get to the 1950s, um, the idea had already sort of started to grow that consumption was an okay thing, that you know, that material growth, material um, the, the ownership of, of material goods um, is good because, it, again, it's, it's reflective of Soviet modernization, um, Soviet wealth, Soviet recovery from the devastation of the Second World War. But, and it's a big but, um, consumption isn't the same. Soviet, Soviets argue that Soviet consumption is not the same thing as egregious American consumption. It is defined by this term kulturnist, which just means like cultured consumption, that you consume goods in a cultured and mindful way. That when you, when you have a good, you, when you have something, you know, like a new dress or a pretty shawl or a nice curtain for your house, that you, you take very good care of it. Um, that it actually, it's almost like it's a piece of art that adds to the quality of your life. And in having it, if you're a working class in particular, and of course, by the time we get to the 1950s, everyone in the Soviet Union is supposed to be a working class. Um, If you have it, it is reflective of not just your personal individual rise up, you know, on the wealth ladder, but it's actually reflective of the entire population's rise, right? The entire population is rising in its culturedness. Um, And that's what consumption is. Um, So the Soviets are okay with that kind of consumption. It's when they see kids, um, you know, wearing blue jeans and smoking cigarettes and getting drunk and, you know, refusing to meet the their curfew demands from their parents that, you know, you've got you've got real problems. And both sides are unhappy about that.
1: That, uh wrapping up the uh, the hooliganism point. Uh, when I in the summer of '03, uh, I lived in Vladimir for for a good bit of the summer. And, oh, I love uh,
2: Vladimir. It's awesome. Uh,
1: yeah, it was, a, it was a fun place. And the uh, the lady I lived with um, had actually been born in Berlin in 1945 in a uh-huh. Russian military hospital. So it was quite wow. a way to come into the world. But anyway, she had all these kittens while I was there. And she referred to them as the hooligans.
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, and one day she was obsessed with uh, soap operas, as uh, so many people are. Anyway, one day the kittens knocked this vase full of water off and fried her television. And so then the shouts of hooligans got a lot louder, so they, I had a chuckle about that when I read your your section in there That's about me. hooliganism. So.
2: I had a I had a husky, I got, um when I was there. I studied there in um, in the nineties as an undergrad, and I was I was in Petersburg during the White Nights Festival and i think i probably didn't come home one night you know because it's a it's a rocking party if if you've ever been like it's a great party that night the you know the the where you have the longest day of the year up in Mm st petersburg and it was leningrad then they were still calling it leningrad because it was the summer of 1992 and um yeah i came back uh to my my hasiaika's house and um she called me a hooligan and (laughs) And I, I remember my Russian wasn't really good enough at the time to understand that she was being, like, that that was, you know, I was, she was really cutting me. Like, you know, I thought, oh, hooligan, like, that's just an old-fashioned word for adolescent. Yeah, But, but no, that's not exactly what she meant at the time.
1: I was a little more serious than yeah. that, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
2: I remember apologizing.
1: <laughs> but well, that, That's probably wise. I certainly towed the line where uh, where my host was concerned as well. Yeah. Uh, so, in the in the next chapter, you you spend a good bit of time talking about the uh, the Soviet camp, the Artek camp, mm-hmm. and uh, my guess is that few people in the audience would be familiar with that. We've all you know heard what happens at Boy Scout camp and so on. So, could you you know kind of give us an overview of the the Artec camp and sure uh, what's what's happening there?
2: So Artek. Um, so you know the Pioneer organization was sort of the Soviet equivalent of the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts smashed together, except that every, basically every child in the Soviet Union was a pioneer. Um, and even in the Eastern Bloc, basically every child growing up in the Soviet era um, was, a, was a member of the pioneer organization. You would start off actually as an Octoberist, um, a little Octoberist. So you'd, you'd actually start with your sort of indoctr- indoctrination into the party um, when you were a child, when you were still in grammar school. And then um, you'd move into the Pioneers and you'd stay in the Pioneers until you were um, in your like early teens. Um, and then you would switch to become, if, if you wanted, if you really had if you had, if you really had an interest and if you had it, certainly if you had an interest in becoming eventually becoming a member of the communist party, um, you would join the Komsomol. Um, and then from the Komsomol, if you really were, um, if you really sort of stood out and you, uh, I don't want to say towed the party line because Komsomol members often were, did really, really important and very good things, um, in their communities, you know, these were young people who were often quite idealistic who um, would take on big service projects um, and you know if you did that and you also were really good about studying your Marx and your Lenin um, then you could get in, you could get um, invited or have the opportunity to become a member of the party but that was actually the that was the primary means for becoming a member of the Communist Party and the pioneers were this critical, Part of it, right? Except that every kid was basically a pioneer, and the they the pioneers had these summer camps. They were actually all over um, Russia. There were there and there were some in Eastern Europe. There were there were these these pioneer camps, and kids would go um, over the summers, usually. Although many of them were op- open year round, like like Artek was, and you'd. You'd go for very minimal cost. Um, the state would pay for the vast majority of it, and you'd have these amazing summers. You'd have a uh, uh, a wonderful time. You know, the RTEC, which is which was the flagship of the pioneer camps, um, it's right on. It's right. Actually, it's still around. It's it's right on the Black Sea, and um, it's this beautiful place uh, where you'd go and learn to you know canoe and hike and. Ride horses and sing songs and do crafts—you know the standard stuff that that you just do when you go to summer camp. Um, you also would do things like visit the nearby soap factory or the nearby, fa- you know, fa- um, textile factory and meet workers and um, and get some decent communist sort of hands-on education while you were there. Uh, so yeah, that's what Arctic was. Now, in this chapter, uh, I spent a good chunk of time thinking about how both the Boy Scouts and the pioneers were, well, first of all, how they were basically all doing the same thing. You know, the Boy Scouts are, um, by and large, state subsidized, uh, at least they were back then. Um, they're very much an, a, a representative of sort of the ideal cream of the crop young people in in the nation. And the same went for the pioneers who went to our tech. Uh Both Um, I think I ended up, in the book, I spent some time comparing the ARTEC experience to the Boy Scout Jamboree experience and seeing how they were all, they were very, very similar, particularly in the 1960s in the ways that they promoted the Soviet and American child as an international activist. Uh, By the time we get to the 1960s, the image of the contained child, sort of careful, protected, Um, You know, inside the home and the school, that vision um, kind of gets burst open um, and it changes into this bigger image of the child as international activist um, and as defender of either the American or the Soviet dream um, abroad. And, you know, Norman Rockwell, who was quite possibly the greatest socialist, realist painter of all time, you know, did a lot of those paintings. (laughs) Um, where he sort of painted these pictures of Boy Scouts, you know, leading the way internationally towards freedom, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I'd, I'd never heard Rockwell described that way, but I guess I can see that.
2: Am I wrong though? I mean, really pull up Rockwell and tell me he's not the greatest. Uh, Stalin would have loved Norman Rockwell. He would have loved him. And that's not like, I'm not dinging Norman Rockwell. He was very, very good at what he did.
1: <laughs> yeah. you know. I was wondering, um, just, I was looking at the, at the time here, if maybe we ought to make sure and get to the section of your book where you're discussing the, the, how these different narratives collapse. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you when you were talking, there's a section where you're talking about the portrayal of children in Soviet film. Mm. And I got to wondering what it was that, that made Khrushchev, uh, uh permit films like this to begin with? I mean, did he yeah. become a prisoner of his own thaw narrative? And so he had to, you know, permit these films to be made or?
2: That's a great question. I mean, I think to some extent, yes. Um, because, you know, there were lots of incredible movies that came out of the Soviet Union in the mid to late 1950s, right from 56 when the thaw begins, really until 62. And even after 62 and 63, there's some great, um, really challenging movies that come out of the Soviet Union, but also out of Georgia and out of sort of the periphery of the Soviet Union um, that, that very much challenged the status quo. So yeah, you know, to some extent, I think maybe we could say that Khrushchev became, you know, imp- the pr- a prisoner of his own rhetoric. I think he also, to give him the benefit of the doubt, really did believe that reform like just like Gorbachev did, that reform was going to require a certain amount of openness and that having dialogue was going to be a critical part of how the Soviet Union got back to being healthy and solvent. So uh, I think Khrushchev believed that there was a need for um, for honest rhetoric. I think that, that Khrushchev, uh, in some ways just like Gorbachev, was incapable of seeing how you know, the system was sick at the core. And that if you allowed, it's the great paradox of reform from above, you know, that if you will, if you allow, if you are, if you are the one, you know, implementing reform from the top down, um, in the end, you know, you you start the reforms, but in the end, people, the people underneath, the people below you, who you are giving the reforms to, are going to start demanding that they get to decide what those reforms should be. And are going to start demanding in the end that you have to relinquish your power. I mean, the ultimate reform in an absolute government is that you stop being an absolute government. And um, so I think that, that was Khrushchev's problem. I think the other big reason why Khrushchev allowed these films in particular, and the reason why so many, so many movies of the thaw period have children as protagonists is because children have this uncanny way of seeming harmless, um, you know, you can you can make a movie about a child and you know, no one's going to see that as being particularly politically incendiary um, because children are harmless. And of course, we know that's not the case. We know that they are an incredibly powerful image, right? And, one to, and an image to be treated very carefully. But at the same time, you know, the standard belief is that children exist in a in a naive and innocent world that has nothing to do with the world that we adults inhabit. And so, yeah, you can go ahead and make your kids movie, right? It's, it's not going to have any, it's not going to do any damage. And of course that ends up not being the case.
1: Could you provide folks with an example of, you know, where's an image of children in Soviet movies that the leadership simply thinks goes too far?
2: So the, the one that I talk about the most in the book, I mean, there are a few great ones, but the one I talk about the most in the book is Tarkovsky's Ivanova Dietzva, um, Ivan's Childhood, which many listeners may have actually seen. And if you haven't, you should, because Tarkovsky's, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers of the 20th century. But, um, you know, in this film, he it's a it's a movie about, no spoilers, but it's a movie about a boy who, um, in the middle of the Second World War, who is has become a a scout behind like who goes behind enemy lines to, to track um, German gun placements and military placements um, on the actual front lines. And the boy is uh, Tarkovsky goes to great lengths, put it this way to show the extent to which this boy and his future and the future of his generation has been destroyed by war. And, um, the film and i when i was in the russian archives or in the soviet film archives um you know really found pretty clear evidence that um tarkovsky and uh the screenwriter both s- saw ivan this child as a symbol not just of the lost childhood of the second world war but of the lost childhood childhoods that are created when war you know when war is something that grips a nation And the whole film is in many ways a metaphor for the betrayal of adults, the betrayal of children by the adults around them, and the ways that adults are willing to sacrifice the young for their own political interests. Um, So. But that there's, I mean, there's a lot of them like that, like that. There are movies where we see kids who are, who are hooligans. We see kids who are a deep, who are utterly unmanaged and without any supervision, you know, supervision. We see kids who are trying to do good and only encounter drunk and uninterested adults. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was this, you know, the, I make the argument in this book that despite the, their best efforts by politicians and public and, you know, uh, propagandists to really control and maintain and manage and utilize this image of this contained child, this innocent and threatened child, despite all of their efforts to do that, um, the image of the child is unmanageable and it, it actually breaks loose and becomes, um, Symbolic of the ways in which the system has, in fact, killed itself, right? The system has broken itself. Um, and the child, you know, by the time we get to the late 60s, of course, you have, you know, you have kids, you have young people out marching on the streets saying, you know, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And the killing of children, the state actually becomes the, you know, the image of the state stops being the protector of the child and starts being the destroyer of the child and um, by the time we get to the late 60s
1: yeah one of the one of the most fascinating vignettes you have in here i thought from the American point of view, was that there's a very uh, tense scene where you have the uh, women's uh, strike for peace group subverting the activities of the of HUAC.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I was wondering maybe just uh, if you could kind of give everybody an overview of what happened when those women brought their children with them <laughs> and how they those children, just by their mere presence, subverted the, the whole proceedings. That was yeah. quite a story of yours.
2: Okay. Well, you know, um, I have to give a, I have to give credit where it's due. Um, the historian Amy Swerdlow also wrote some really great stuff on this story. So, um, I, uh, I was not the first person to encounter this narrative. She was. And then, um, I, I came across it in the Swarthmore Peace Archives, um, and, and, you know, borrowed from her scholarship and not borrowed, but, you know, very much, um, you know, took careful care to include her work um, in my retelling of that story. Um, But the, you know, the Women's Strike for Peace was this anti-nuclear movement that that was run by women and managed by women, very well-educated college women, college-educated women, who eventually they actually become an um, anti-war group as well. But, Early on, it's all about anti nuclear. They're, they're they're very much involved in the protests um, building up to the big anti nuclear, um, like the Test Ban treaties and stuff that happened in the '60s. And one of the the ways that the U.S. government tries to silence them is by um, calling them up to um, you know during the Red Scare um, before the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC where they are um, accused of allowing communists to uh, work within their organization. And the women are told that they're going to be summoned before HUAC, and they uh, debate back and forth how they're going to sort of navigate this really treacherous water when they have the brilliant idea that, that they're just going to all bring their children. Um, with them to the hearing, and you know I don't, if you've ever been in a room full of screaming three-year-olds, but it's a it's a thing, and they all do it. They all bring their kids to the HUAC <laughs> hearing, and it creates utter chaos. It, it creates, and of course, the the con- con- the, the congressional um, representatives, you know, can't really do much because here are these women who have right from the beginning. Um, been arguing that they are mobile. These are housewives, right? They say we are just housewives. We are just simple women, simple mothers um, who are first and foremost concerned for the welfare of our children. And we are, you are the ones who are driving us out into the streets. You are the ones who are forcing us to leave our kitchens, to come out into the streets, to protest on behalf of our children, because you're not thinking about our children anymore. And so they bring their kids to the hearing. And um, uh, eventually there's a there's a lovely standoff that happens um, on the witness stand um, and uh, and the whole thing falls apart and the women's strike for peace are able to go home. Now that's, I mean, it's a lovely story, but um, they do end up doing some purging. Um, they do end up, um, you know, having to be, they 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 refuse to expel any known communists from the group, but they do. You can read in the background literature that they that they are spooked by this experience, um, and that it you know it as you can imagine right. It, it's a it's a it's a pretty harrowing event for them. So, you know, you know
1: I, as the father of six children myself, I'm aware of what a room full of three year olds <laughs> will accomplish. So, <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: Uh, you know, if you want chaos, I think that's yes. just how that's done. It's
1: it's totally. my house on a daily basis. <laughs>
2: uh, it doesn't last so- forever. I only have three of them, and they do eventually stop screaming.
1: <laughs> so, you, uh, uh, so then on the uh, more on, on, um, since we're kind of headed towards the Vietnam era here, you spend yeah. a good bit of time, you know, on that. There's that famous picture, of course, of the burned girl going mm-hmm. down the, uh, uh, Running down the road, as I recall, right. I was wondering is there any? Uh, this was something you didn't really talk about in the book. Is there any similar problems that the Soviet Union experiences as a result of the Afghan War?
2: Um, yeah, um, there is. You know, I, I wasn't able. I didn't do the research on this because I didn't pull the book up into the seventies. You know, I just it, you know, it was just another beast of a project. I also think that the story kind of changes as we move into the seventies. I, I, I think that it needed a lot more careful thought and attention on my part to figure out what happens to the image of the child in the 1970s. I don't think it remains static. I think that there are transformations. Um, I just came, I just came out with an article in diplomatic history on um, Samantha Smith, who was this American girl who traveled um, to the Soviet union uh, in the, in the eighties in the mid eighties. Um, actually, uh, actually in the early 80s, b- before um, Gorbachev comes to power, um, uh, when on drop off is in charge, and um, had to really sit and think carefully about what children symbolize by the time we get to the 80s. Um, I I think that the, it, it's possible that what I found with the Samantha Smith story would also apply to what I found with the Afghanistan story, which is that I mean, I'm sorry, the other way around. If, if I were to look at the Afghanistan story, it would it would sort of be similar to what I found with the so- Samantha story, which is that, you know, the Soviet Union had this undying mantra, really from its inception, but certainly from the 1920s on, that it was first and foremost the great defender of peace in the world. You know, the Soviet Union lover of peace, 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 peace. Like it's this word that just gets me, it just gets tossed around all the time. And... uh the Soviets are constantly contrasting their love of peace with, you know, U.S. warmongering, right? This is one of the great Soviet dichotomies um, of of national identity that the Soviets, uh, you know, are, are peaceful and that the Americans are warmongers. And we're not going to talk about Hungary (laughs) in 56. And we're not going to talk about Prague in 68. And we're not going to talk about um, Afghanistan in 79, right? Like these are, um, Sort of open blind spots. There are big elephants in the room in Soviet rhetoric, and they're not talked about. Um, I think that by the time we get to Afghanistan, the image of the child is so it has become such a overused image as a, as an emblem of peace. That it sort of has lost its meaning. You know how if you say a word over and over again, you eventually stop being able to tell what it means. Yeah, um, it, it's like that. It's it, it's as though you see it so much that you stop seeing it. Um, and the image of the child as this peaceful, you know, the image of the Afghani child, for instance, as this uh, this object worth soviet defense right worth having soviet soldiers go and fight to defend um the image of the soviet child somehow being threatened by afghan um fighters like these these that image stops resonating like it just stops working um i think for the vast majority of the soviet population Um, and it is and maybe it does fit with the vietnam um chapter in that it becomes a symbol of betrayal right the the child becomes an, an empty symbol or if it does have meaning, it's it's a it's a symbol of failed propaganda. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I I think it's a tough call um, to figure out how that would work. Um uh. A good friend of mine, Sergei Yurchak, has written this great book called um, Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, who you should totally interview. And in that book, he makes the argument that um, that's exactly what we see happening in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, that there's this um, – there's that the, the, the rhetoric itself, even the performance of the rhetoric, the saying of the rhetoric, the going out and participating in the mass marches, all of it uh, – you know, takes on this empty, this nature, it's just, it becomes an empty performance that, that um, if it has any meaning at all, um, it's either lost on those people doing it, or um, it actually means the opposite of what it's supposed to mean. And, you know, there sure. are great people who've written about about the, the sense of betrayal that comes out of Afghanistan. And if you think about, you know, the great movies that came out of, um, the Afghan war, the great Soviet films or Russian movies and late, like late Soviet movies that came out of, um, that, that dealt with Afghanistan often again, right. You see images of children in those films.
1: So, uh, um, overall here, uh, I think it's pretty fair to say you've uncovered, what amounts to the fundamental limits of propaganda, right? They, it, at some point it, it, uh, it eats, it eats its own goal. Is that fair enough?
2: I don't know. Like you would think, and yet somehow it all also continues to work, right? I mean, the reason I had this pro the reason I got this idea, the thing that gave me this idea to write this book was in 2003, I was driving home. Um, and I heard, George W. Bush get on the radio and say that we were going to invade Iraq to defend American children from weapons of mass destruction. And like that, that, that he said that, right. And like that worked. And if you turn on the radio, it's, you know, the image of the child as contained and threatened and in need of defense as a justification for otherwise really problematic policies is alive and well. Like that, that practice is totally alive and well to this day. And our current um, president does it all the time, badly. Uh, So um, it's, you know, it's as though uh, as a, as a population, we just have no institutional memory (laughs) of uh, the ways in which we are so easily manipulated. Um, Jacques Elul, the, you know, the great um, philosopher, you know, who wrote that, that seismic book, Propaganda, um, you know, talked a lot about how um, populations are always first and foremost waiting for instruction on how to act, and um, the child works really well in, in as an instructional tool, and so maybe that's
1: why it keeps getting used. I guess if it uh, if it works, you might as well go back to the well. That's right. Uh, If
2: I were a politician, I would. I'd kiss babies all day long.
1: (laughs) So uh, we're just about out of time here. Um, Can you give us a brief uh, synopsis of where you're headed next, what your next project is going to be?
2: Sure. Um, My next book, uh, I just spent the last like five years learning Arabic. And the the next book is on um, the history of radio propaganda to the Middle East in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, And these days I'm not looking at children. I am still looking at propaganda and children do pop up because of course they're all over the place. But, but really this project is, it has, I've gone off and worked and done work in the Russian, the Soviet archives, the Russian archives, the U S archives, the British archives, the Cuban archives, the Egyptian and Israeli archives. And um, I'm really interested in thinking about what dissonance of information what audio dissonance does to a population when you can change the channel during you know the six-day war during the Suez crisis change the radio channel and hear truly hear five completely different versions of what's happening outside your window Um, and what does it mean to be to have been living in the post-truth universe at least since the 1940s uh, kind of make the argument that the Middle East has been living in a post-truth universe since the 1940s, and that there are some pretty critical lessons to learn from how, from the kind of skepticism of information that we now see in the Middle East as, as a potential harbinger for what we are soon to face, if we're not facing it already now.
1: That sounds like quite a uh, quite a project. You should
2: yeah, it is.
1: Shout when it when it's done, and we can talk about that one too.
2: That sounds great. We'll do that.
1: Okay. Thank you very much for being with us, Margaret. Thank you so much, Aaron. It was great. You bet. Bye.
2: Bye Bye-bye.